Amen. So, 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And so Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Canaanites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. And then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and his army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These, were, these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally dis- destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. He cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. Then Samuel reached him. Sorry, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, The soldiers brought them back from their Malachites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel, Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people. The Amalekites wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did, not, I, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agath their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sins and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the, Lord of, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. 
As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not human, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Malachites. Agag came to him in chains and thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul wept. So so Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of, of Saul until the day Samuel died. He did, not get, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Wow. Let's have a quick prayer, and then we can uh, look at some, some hopefully quick points from this passage. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, yeah, I just want to pray that we can really embrace your word today, and that we can have open minds, open hearts to the example of Saul that you have given us, Lord. Even though he's a bad example, I pray his example can be a, a beacon of where we should go, Lord, and that we can follow you with righteousness, Lord, but also sincerity, and that we can really obey and follow your word completely, Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just pray that I can speak and translate your word accurately, and that I can really bring it forward before everyone here today. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. So, see if this works now. I'm guessing not. I have rotten luck when it comes to slides on my sermons. Uh, I think it's because I use PowerPoint instead of Keynote. I may have to switch soon. All right, well, immediately when I read this uh, passage, first of all, there's a lot of content. Right? It's not an easy passage, all right? Even as I was researching, the more and more, well, the deeper I went into it, the more and more content came out. It was actually quite, kind of intimidating. It's like, where do I start here? Because there's a few different aspects which you can really pursue. Obviously, there's a mass genocide, which God orders. That's a, quite a confronting thought, right? That our God, our loving, merciful God, could order a genocide of an entire people, right? But ultimately, I feel like the main the main message is found in an example of Saul, right? And how he deals and how he approaches the word of God, right? And so when I was reading this, I was reminded of Mark chapter 4. Now, you don't have to turn there, but it says, Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about this parable. He told them the secrets, so the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And the reason this passage reminds me of Saul is because he's a bit like this, right? He hears the word of God, but he doesn't really perceive the word of God, right? There's a big difference between hearing and actually listening to what it says, right? There's definitely a disconnect from the moment where God says it into Saul's actions, that somewhere along the line, it doesn't quite go all the way. And so I found it interesting as well how in verse 1, the chapter starts with, so listen now to the message of the Lord. That's how the chapter starts. Listen to the Lord. And the same Hebrew word, which is used for, to, uh, for obey in verse 22, can be translated as listen as well. I think the reason why is because 
the passage is connecting the idea of listening and obeying. Right? These are intertwined concepts. They're not separate. Right? To listen is to obey. Right? But ultimately, Saul isn't obedience. Or at the very least, he's not fully obedience. He hears, but he doesn't really listen. Right? And so I have three points here. Um, oh, I have my, yeah, that's uh, sweet. I have three points here. Uh, first of all, uh, Saul has, well, selective hearing of Saul. My second one is Saul is, well, self-deceived Saul. And the third one I have is the solution uh, to self-deception, right? The solution to pretty much everything, right? Not just, not just self-deception, right? So let's break down these points really quickly. I'll try to make it quick because there is so much immense content in here, right? Now, have you ever, I know personally I have anyway, found it hard to remember names? I was having a discussion uh, before church um, with you guys um, about how, how difficult it is to really recall names. And I've had this problem for a long time. I go sharing with Jack. Jack is laughing. And it's almost like a meme now because I'll meet someone's like, hey, yo, what's your name? But it's so robotic and it's such a, like a routine that the name just goes over my head. And then I'll reach out to the person. And then I find myself when the person says, yes, what's your name again? And it, it was so heavily ingrained in me that even when I do remember their name, I say, what was, what's your name again? <laughs> I'm like, why am I even asking? I know their name. <laughs> but, but listening is sometimes challenging. Maybe, maybe, it's just, just not, maybe it's not unique to me or Saul. Maybe it's unique to, or maybe it's, it's, it's uh, applicable to men as well in general. I know there's many times where Pam has spoken to me and I've given the social cues. Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand. And then to my absolute dread, she asked me a question. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I'm left in a situation where I have no idea what's happening. I have, I have, I've heard her, but have I listened? Right? Not really. Right? But that's, that's what Saul is doing here. He hears, he hears the word of God. He hears the commandment from God, but he doesn't really listen to it. Right? Because if he had listened to it, he would have given full obedience to it. Right? It says there in verse 2 to 3, uh, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Melchites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. And this is not ambiguous at all. He says, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That's not a lot of wriggle room. Right? God does not even leave out the donkeys. Nothing is implied. There's no assumptions here, okay? It's not a parable. It's not a hidden meaning, okay? It's a direct message. But that's not how Saul hears it, is it? He hears it almost like it is a parable, right? as if there is a little bit of wriggle room, Right? We have to remember that there is no wriggle room in God's word, right? We cannot have selective hearing when it comes to God's word, right? Because ultimately, Saul's selective hearing leads to his rejection, his rejection from God, right? But it's to really understand the magnitude of, of Saul's selective hearing, as, as per se, we have to look at the context between the Amalekites and Israel, 
right? Because it is a little bit of an interesting one, because I can imagine, especially if you're new to church, you know, new to reading the Bible, or even, even if you've been a Christian for a while, right? There's a lot of dominant perceptions of God as just a loving, carefree, forgiving care bear. I, I, I feel like a better word. It's a big, cuddly teddy bear, right? And this, this, passage, this passage, passage should absolutely demolish it. Right? This is a God who orders the genocide of an entire people. Right? This is not a God who fits into our perceptions of a teddy bear. Right? He's, it, it's, it's way more intense. It's, it's, there's more elements and characteristics of God here in play. Right? Oops. I only have three slides here. Amen. All right, I'll leave it up to you, Jordan, to figure it out, man. All right. So why does God command the genocide of an entire nation? All right, so to, to understand this, we, we go back to Exodus. And so the Amalekites were a people who ultimately attacked Israel at their weakest. So after Israel had you know, been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, they, they uh, you know, in the deserts, uh, fairly, fairly not well off, right? Having, having a hard time just leaving slavery. And at that moment, the Amalekites attack. This is five to six hundred years before this Samuel passage, right? a long time ago. Right? But that set the tone of, a, a, of the Amalekites being the enemies of Israel. And I, I read several different commentaries that talk about, how it's, I talk about how the Amalekites kind of personify all the enemies of Israel. They weren't just like these random uh, enemies, but they kind of like were the collective entity. And so it's, if you look in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20, it, it gives a little bit of insight into it. Uh, verse 17, where it says, well, it, it means, I mean, it gives insight into why God wants to destroy these people. All right? It says, completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods as you will sin against the Lord your God. So this is the mentality of why God orders the genocide of a group of people. It's not a lighthearted thing. Right? And it all ties back to the theme of 1 Samuel, which if you remember the theme of Israel being separate from other nations. Right? Here in, Deuteron- here in Deuteronomy, God is saying that he doesn't want these nations infecting Israel. He is trying to preserve Israel. And this reminds me of the uh, story of Lot. Right, if you're familiar with the story of Lot, he's in Sodom. Sodom gets destroyed by God, right? And as they are fleeing, Lot's wife looks, looks back. Right? He looks, she looks back at the wickedness of Sodom, longing for it. And she is turned into a pillar of salt. And that represents God trying to preserve righteousness and truth. And sometimes the preservation of righteousness comes at the de- requires, sorry, requires the destruction of wickedness. And that's the harsh reality of God, that God is willing to destroy the wicked to preserve the righteous. Right? That's a character, characteristic of God which is not always talked about. Right? Because it's, it's not as appealing for obvious reasons that God has an element of wrath and destruction behind him. Thanks. And so in Exodus, we get to see the... uh, Next slide, please. 
So in Exodus uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 8, and also in Deuteronomy uh, 25, 17, we get to see the Amalekites and why they are evil people, all right? Because God destroys them not out of a, a vengeful hate, but he does it more so out of a, a sense of justice, divine justice and punishment, all right? And Deut- in Deuteronomy, it says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land, he is giving you to possess as an inheritance. You shall blot out the name of the Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Here God is saying, do not forget that the Amalekites attacked you, right? And he kind of pictures the Amalekites as almost like these, these animalistic savages, these vicious people. They don't just attack Israel, but it says here they attack Israel at their weakest points, those who were falling behind, lagging behind. Right? These are people who capitalize on the weaknesses of another nation, which is, which is normal, right, for those days. If you're going to have a military conquest, you attack the weakest points of your enemies. Right? But it does not excuse, it does not excuse uh, God's infinite and divine uh, justice. So what, what is the significance of God commanding this, the complete destruction of Amalekites, right? He, it, ha- it has significance, obviously, because they, well, he wants to set Israel apart. But it's, it's the, the focus is on the complete destruction, Saul hears the partial destruction, and he goes and he partially destroys the Amalekites, but the emphasis is on the complete destruction. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, why, why the babies? Why the children? Right? Why the donkeys? Right? It, seems, it seems like a little bit excessive, but God is making a point here. And the point here is that Israel is set apart. It was totally the norm in those days that when a nation conquered a different nation, they would plunder that's the norm. You conquer a different nation, you kill off the men, and you take the women, the children are slaves, and you take their wealth, their land, their cattle, whatever you can take for self-gain, for self-benefit. And that was the pattern of the world around them. God is here saying to Saul, do not follow the pattern of the world. This is not how you're meant to do it. You're going to have a military conquest, but you are not going to do it the world's way. You are going to do it my way, a righteous way where you're not here for self-gain, to benefit yourself, but you are going to wipe out these people for a spiritual gain, for divine justice and punishments. But of course, that's not how Saul perceives it, right? Paul brings back the animals. He brings back Agag, the king, probably as a monument to himself. He plunders them. He embraces the culture of the Amalekites. Now, that's a, that's a massive irony, that the people he set out to destroy, he adopts their values. And that's why God rejects them. It has nothing to do with, you know, on the surface it can, seem, it can seem harsh and evil, as if God is fighting evil with evil. But the reality is God is fighting evil with justice and righteousness. And we, in our arrogance, 
might see a genocide of a people and think to ourselves, well, God is unjustified here. But we have to look a little bit deeper into the text, right? And really the question from this, this point I really want to ask you guys is, do we have selective hearing of God? Do we hear God's word and do we nitpick? Saul hears God's word to completely destroy the Amalekites and he says, well, I'm going to do it my way. I know the outcome you want, God, but I'm going to do it with my process, right? not your process. Near enough is good enough in, in Saul's mind. But that's not, that's not the reality of God. Are you guys struggling with the uh, slides? <laughs> that's not the reality of God. God. God doesn't have a near enough is good enough attitude. He has an obedience. You are either obedient or you are disobedient attitude. Right? It is a polarized position. You can't half-heartedly obey God. You can't hear an aspect of God's word and nitpick. I like this part. This gives me gain. But this part here, wiping out you know, the cattle, I wanted to exclude that part. Yeah? We have to remember that we have to remember that we can't nitpick God's word. So this comes to the question as well. Um, it brings us to the question of why does Saul do this? That's a great question. Because the reason Saul does this, it answers one of the largest problems we have as human beings is that we know what we are meant to do, but we still don't do it. <laughs> Saul knows what he's meant to do. There's no, like I said, there's no wriggle room in God's command. Go wipe them out. But he still does not do it. And the reason it's found here in my second point, Saul is self-deceived. Self-deception is... Self-deception is interesting because it's, it's very difficult to, difficult to diagnose. It's so tied in with identity. And what we see here with Saul is his self-deception of who he is ultimately leads to his disobedience to God. Well, think about it. In, in verse 13, he says, or it says, When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And again in verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. Saul, Saul sees reality in such a different frame from Samuel and God. It's almost ridiculous. How, how, they have so, such far differentiated viewpoints of what actually happened, of reality. But that's what self-deception is. It's a distortion of reality around you. And it's a, dist- a distortion of your own reality of who you are. Timothy Keller describes self-deception as the ability to know something at one level, but not at a deeper level, right? And that's where it comes into this notion of Saul hears, but he doesn't really listen. He has partial obedience. So what what is Saul's self-deception, right? Saul's self-deception is found in verse 17 where it says, Though you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? This is powerful because if you remember back in chapter, chapter 10, Saul was hiding as he's been elected as king, hiding amongst the baggage. He is, he is weak, humble, and meek. He is scared of being elected king. He does not see himself as good enough. 
Five chapters later, he's erecting a monument of himself. That's incredible how quickly that self-deception crept into his heart. He was once more in his own eyes, but now he has made himself big, big in his eyes, right? And that's Saul's self-deception. He is big in his own eyes. God brought him to the kingship, but from Saul's perspective, he no longer needs God. God is irrelevant. And where there once was humility, now it's only pride. But what does, um, well, think about it like this. What does Saul's monument represent? Because it, it does have a symbolic representation. Saul's monument represents his self-deception about his identity. He sees himself as big when he's actually small. So he creates a monument testifying to that self-deception. Does he see it? No, of course not. It's self-deception. But God and Samuel see it. They see it very clearly. Like, what are you doing? It makes me think, what kind of monuments do we have for our self-deceptions? Monuments of self-deception are linked to identity. And this, this, is how you, this is how you locate the monuments of your self-deception. You need to look at your identity, parts of your life, how you characterize yourself, and think to yourself, is that actually true? Or is that, is that based on a lie? Some of the, some of the common self-deceptions that kind of uh, pop into my mind would be, actually, sorry, I have a story of a self, <laughs> I have a story of me being self-deceived, sorry. Uh, and so I consider myself a fairly fit guy. I, I've been in the church, you know, a, a while now, and so I play death sack, I play basketball. Right? After COVID, that's, that perception of myself took a little bit of a beating, especially when I came to church, especially when I came to church straight after COVID. And I don't want to name names, okay? But I had Pansy come up to me, and she was just like, Jono, what's happened to you? I was like, what do you mean what's happened to me? She's like, oh, Jono. Reality is that I had got a little bit fat. Okay, you laugh now, okay, still a bit of, oh, no, I'm so, <laughs> no, I'm totally not self-deceived anymore. <laughs> so, of course, like, my response to Pansy's input, okay, is, pfft, what does Pansy know? But not too long after that, oh, maybe a couple of months after that, where well, I still fairly unfit, I had Adam invite me to play basketball. And suddenly my self-deception was faced with the reality of having to do physical exercise. And where everyone else was jumping and running, I was heaving over my knees, trying my best to prevent myself from puking on the court. (laughs) Self-deception cannot face up to reality. When reality hits self-deception, one of them has to give. And we have a choice, right? When we hit with reality, we can break the self-deception, which I admit, I was like, oh, maybe I'm not as fit as I thought I was. Or we can persist in it. And that's kind of what Saul does here, right? Even after, even after he's exposed by Samuel, right, he's still focused very strongly on what everyone thinks. 
He says, come back, come back with me so that I may be honored in front of Israel, in front of men, so that I may still be honored. Self-deception is hard to break, guys, right? Because self-deception is so intimately linked to identity. Uh, so, some of the examples that kind of come to my mind is that parents, parents often are self-deceived about their kids, right? Oh, Leah's shaking her head. <laughs> but it's true. We, uh, parents are self-deceived about the quality of their kids. That's, that's a bad way to put it, right? <laughs> but like, they, they have a blind eye. I mean, love, love is blind. I, mean, I think back to the, the days when I was teaching swimming. And I, I taught swimming for a few years, but I would have parents come up to me and demand their children go up to the next stage. Like, yeah, is that good enough? I'm like, are you kidding me? No, goodness, no. Uh, they're going to drown if you put them up. But the self-deception is so heavily ingrained that they offer their children up as a monument to themselves. They need their children to be a monument of how good of a parent they are. So that when the reality of, hey, your your kid is going to drown, that's less important than perpetuating this idea that, you know what, I'm a good parent. My child is successful. Because the child's success is linked to their identity as parents. And you might not be parents, but we have all kinds of monuments. We have monuments in school and work. We have monuments in relationships. This person thinks highly of me. I'm a good person. We have monuments in our church, religiously. If I go evangelizing, if I go sharing, I have enough Bible studies. These are going to be monuments testifying to my character. Right? But what does Samuel say? He says that ultimately offerings and sacrifices are less important than obedience. Right? Our religiousness, <laughs> our monuments we offer up are less important. And there's some, I'm running out of time very quickly, so I'll wrap this up quickly. Uh, <laughs> but there's some, there's some, Noteworthy characteristics of someone who is self-deceived. And the first one, the obvious one we see, and we see repeatedly in 1 Samuel, is that Saul blame shifts. It's never his fault, right? When he's called out by Samuel, he responds, hey, it's not me who brought all the plunder. It's the soldiers. They did it, right? And he persists with this self-deception. He refuses to give in because the attack by Samuel on Saul threatens Saul's identity as the king, right? And we see this as he hunts down David. He's willing to, go to, willing to go to great extents to protect his perception of himself as a king, right? of him being large in his own eyes. And the second, the second aspect is religiosity, like religiousness. And self-deceived people tend to gravitate towards this idea that if I do enough, if I'm religious enough, then this makes me a good person, right? But that's, that's not how it works, right? If I read the Bible this much, if I come to church this much, if I tick several of the religious boxes, right, that monument will testify to my character. That's not how the grace of God works. That's not what our salvation is built on, right? But that's a temptation because it's self-deception, we need to perpetuate this idea of who we are. 
And so it does remind me, uh, I guess I'll skip that passage, we'll go straight to the third point, where the solution to self-deceit, it's not just a solution to self-deceit, but it's a solution to everything, okay? These are very simple ways that we can break down our, all those monuments, all that self-deceit, all, those, all that fuzziness, the, 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 uh, the cloudiness in us approaching God, right? It's a way of breaking down our, our, our ability to have selective hearing on God's word. And the first one I have here is humility. Humility is immensely important. If you guys remember that Saul is once small in his own eyes. And this is, this is what it says here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul is at one stage humble. He's, he recognizes that he is more in his own eyes. But as that changes, as pride creeps in, he becomes gradually more and more self-deceived. We have to try to stay, try to stay humble. Easier said than done, right? <laughs> stay humble. How do we stay humble? Well, the answer is in that Philippians passage as well. Just like pansy humbles me. <laughs> we need people around us. We need help. Hebrews 3 13 says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We all have the ability to be self-deceived. It's human nature. This is what we do. We create a persona of who we are and we live by that persona to the very end sometimes. But having people around us who are like-minded, who are Christ-minded, who are looking to drag us along in salvation, kicking and screaming sometimes, those are the type of people who are going to expose our self-deceptions. Because we can't see self-deceptions ourselves. We're caught up in them. Alone, we are helpless. But together, the people to your left, to your right... It goes a long way. And you should ask yourself, do I have someone in my life who is able to call me out? Or maybe even think to yourself, do I have someone in my life who is comfortable calling me out? Are you the type of person who responds to criticism quite harshly and aggressively? What does that say about your heart? Right? What does that say about the image you're trying to portray in your faith in Jesus? And finally, the final thing I want to mention is it is by the grace of of God that we are able to break from our self-deceptions, right? Saul is made king of Israel when he is humble, but it is by the grace of God, by divine election that he has made that king. In the same way, we have been given a position similar to Saul in the household of God. We are made daughters and sons of Christ. We have been taken from a very lowly position, enemies of God, and we are made far more, right, by his grace and grace alone. 
And that's something we need to remember. Amen? Amen. All right, so my three points as I finish up. Selective hearing, self-deceived sore, and solutions to self-deception require us to be humble and to have help. So how about we have a quick prayer and uh, then we can have some, some songs. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I just pray that we can, we can use this lesson that we've learned from Saul, Lord, uh, to not be self-deceived, that we can look at ourselves soberly and earnestly, Lord, uh, yearning to be more Christ-like, and that we can strive to emulate who you are in our lives. Uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, we can accept help from one another, that we can be uh, able to to have our, our sins and our self-deceptions, our monuments broken down eagerly, that we don't put up a fight to keep those monuments standing, that we are willing to give them up all to you, and that our, our, our religious act, acts, our sacrifices that we make uh, are not in vain, but through obedience to you, Lord, that ultimately uh, we don't just offer uh, readings or or coming to church, all these, all these outward religious acts, Lord, but I pray that we can uh, really give our entire lives as living sacrifices to you. Uh, I pray this in your precious name. Amen.